Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, September 20th. Inflation is still hanging around and not showing signs of dropping anytime soon. The Fed is set to raise interest rates again this week and to sort through all the noise on Wall Street and Washington. Bill Cohan is here to talk about rate hikes, inflation, deflation, crypto, Fed leaks, Joe Biden, and whether a global recession is coming. Later on, Eric Gardner stops by to talk about Project Veritas, the undercover right-wing outfit that calls itself journalism. But is it actually? Eric explains. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Uh, We are joined today by Bill Cohan, who's here to talk about the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Bill, do you have any takes on the on the royals? Well, you know, I spent 13 years uh, as a special correspondent at Vanity Fair, where, of course, there was a heavy emphasis on the royals, which uh, I never really understood. It's funny, actually, the Vanity Fair royals correspondent just popped up uh, on NBC. I just had it on mute in the background. Hmm. And I'm just like, the like royals coverage has this like patina of like seriousness and elegance. But I think it's just like their British accents. Like it's really just like gossip reporting. Like if Mario Lopez had a British accent, like he would be covering the Royals. <laughs> totally the British accent. To- completely. A thousand percent. It's total gossip. And and their behavior, I mean, if you look at the crown, could not have been happy about their portrayal in, in the crown. Absolutely not. Um, I want to talk about something decidedly less uh, sexy and scandalous, but way more consequential. For us anyway, not royals. (laughs) I want to talk to you about deflations, inflation, deflation. I did not do well in Mr. Peck's AP econ class in high school. All I remember is guns and butter. So I might need your help explaining some of this stuff. But Joe Biden was on 60 Minutes on Sunday night. And he's always, you know, working class Joe. He's always said, I'm concerned about middle class families and prices. But Scott Pelley asked him about inflation concerns. And, uh, you know, inflation being hotter in August than expected, uh, the stock market taking a dive. And Biden didn't like wave it off, but he was kind of like, we're done with the spikes. Like inflation is, he he's, was really projecting that like inflation is stabilizing. We're going to get it under control. Does that feel like a sort of dangerous flag to plant 
it doesn't seem totally under control. The economy is very weird. Uh, some gas prices are down, food prices are up, air travels down, prices are up for other things. Did he make a mistake in sort of downplaying inflation, do you think? I mean, obviously he's projecting no politician, especially with important midterm elections coming up in uh, you know a couple of months, wants inflation to be quote unquote out of control. They want it to be under control and on a path to being reduced. And I, I don't think he's necessarily wrong about that. I mean, again, we'll have to see. I think gas prices are coming down. Other prices are still high. But I think, you know, demand is going to start slowing. To a great extent, this has been driven by supply constraints. But I think if demand starts being reduced, then some of the supply constraints will start being reduced. And then I think prices will uh, begin to soften, all of which is to say he could very well be right because the Fed is quite serious now about raising interest rates and the market is anticipating all of that. That's why, you know, forget stock market prices, uh, you know, which obviously have come down and continue to come down uh, and will continue to come down. But bond yields have increased dramatically. And that means the price of money is more expensive. Frankly, that's also a good thing, although there's a lot of pain involved for people and it will mean a slowing economy. But, you know, we've been 13 years where risk has been mispriced, as I've been writing about ad nauseum for years now. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the bond market has been uninvestable for 13 years. You know, it's beginning to actually look attractive as a place to invest your money, although this is not investment advice. One other thing I want to ask you about, speaking of not being able to predict the future, is you have like like Barry Sternlich, the investor and the f- chairman of FedEx and lots of like whale investors on Twitter or whatever, like predicting like a global recession is coming. Why are they out there saying those things? I just think that it's frankly, it's it's inevitable at this point after 13 years of a Fed-induced stock and bond market uh, rally of risk being mispriced, of asset bubbles uh, left and right, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or NFTs or cryptocurrencies or art or real estate, I mean, whatever it is, markets go in cycles and people forget that and their memories are short. And we've got a whole kind of new generation, certainly of young people on Wall Street who have never experienced a recession, uh, you know, who weren't here in 2008 who didn't experience the financial crisis, who weren't here in 2001, who weren't here in, you know, 1993 or 1991 and 1987. I mean, they pretend like trees can grow to the sky and that the markets aren't cyclical and that you don't have to pay the piper. And of course, all of that's not true. None of that's true. Wait, so you're saying that like a 23-year-old crypto guy in New York named Kyle doesn't understand... (laughs) Yeah, the historic yeah, Peter. That's what I'm saying. Flows of the market. Oh, okay. And, and maybe a 35 year old trader at Goldman Sachs doesn't understand it either. They'll find out soon enough that um, you know their bonuses will be down. People will be talking about layoffs. Goldman Sachs is already doing layoffs. Uh, investment banking revenues are going to be down whatever 50 percent when that happens. Uh, people's jobs are on the line. Their bonuses are on the line, and uh, they're going to find out that. 
uh, the world is very different than the one they've been experiencing. Now, somebody as old as I am has, of course, been watching this since I got to Wall Street in September of 87. And then the next month, the stock market went down uh, 22.6% in one day, which remains the largest one-day fall in the in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And uh, I saw grown men cry standing around uh, the Quotron machine, which nobody even knows what that is anymore. So, you know, I feel like I'm like an old timer talking about the stock ticker, (laughs) you know. Lazard runs through your veins. Um, I want to also ask you about some comments from super investor Kathy Wood, who warned about deflation and, uh, you know, our favorite character on the powers that be, Elon Musk, sort of tweeted that he agreed with her. It's not hard to understand why inflation is bad and people don't like it. Like people don't want to pay more for stuff. Deflation is not good either. Yeah. Can you explain why? Because, you know, you need to have a balance here. And, you know, it's like the Goldilocks and the three bears, uh, you know, you know, you, you want it to be just right uh, to eat the porridge. Uh, if it's deflation, then the value of everybody's assets gets reduced dramatically. People feel really poor. I mean, a depression Bread lines, uh, bank failures, you name it. You know, inflation is not good either because prices rise faster than people's incomes. And then they, uh, you know, can't keep up. And of course, then the value of people's assets goes up too. There's sort of two competing thoughts on inflation. But again, neither is good. You need, you know, that's why the Fed targets a 2% inflation rate, because that kind of feels neither inflationary nor deflationary. You want people to be able to, uh, you know, afford things. It's a very complicated equation, essentially. The real effect of what's going on now has been somewhat muted by the fact that unemployment uh, is so low, you know, employment is so high, and Basically, everybody who wants a job has one. Um, may not be the most uh, highest paying job, but basically, you know, uh, there's a lot of power uh, among workers now to kind of get what they want. But you see that that's actually beginning, you know, to change. Like when investment banking revenues are down 50% on Wall Street, then people on Wall Street are going to lose their jobs. When the unemployment rate increases and People are, uh, you know, we're heading into, you know, quote unquote, a recession or, you know, uh, people can't pay for things. Then I think the effect of all this will really begin to hit hit home. Jerome Powell's set to announce a rate hike tomorrow, right? Absolutely. You can bet your bottom dollar uh, on that. Uh, you know, whether it's 75 basis points or 100 basis points or 50 basis points, I'm sure some of that is starting to leak out into the market and people are starting to trade on that. And it's always amazing. You know, I have people who write me literally every time this happens that how do people figure out what he's going to say before he says it? You know, it's obviously written down. There are people who know what he's going to say. And somehow that always leaks out. And some traders get that and make a freaking fortune trading on that. But yeah, there's no question that interest rates are going up. All right. Well, maybe by the time we have you back on the pod next week, we'll be back at 2% inflation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't hold your breath for that. (laughs) 
Thanks for playing uh, my economics professor for uh, this episode. I, I, I need I need some handholding. And, and I'm not even <laughs> I don't even play one on TV, Peter. I, you know, I'm just going to buy a bunch of Ethereum and just see what happens. I feel like that's a smart. Move, oh so. yeah, because now they've done the merge and <laughs> everything's good again in crypto land. <laughs> All right, Bill. Thanks so much. All right, take care. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Eric Gardner about Project Veritas. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, starting off the week here with Eric Gardner. So you've been doing some reporting for Puck on a fascinating case that seems like it's sort of sailed under the radar a little bit, but that has potentially huge ramifications for the news media. And it stars none other than James O'Keefe, the conservative activist slash journalist who runs Project Veritas. That's the outfit that's known for infiltrating liberal organizations and newsrooms and tricking people into divulging allegedly sinister political agendas. And now, not for the first time, O'Keefe and Veritas are being sued. So what's the story with this latest case? Sure. Well, this case dates back to, I guess, one of the group's most notorious exploits, something that happened during the 2016 presidential election, the one where Trump was elected president. And here, um, 
uh, O'Keefe and his outlet managed to ingratiate themselves into one of the top Democratic consultants that year. Um, basically, they, they figured out a way to sneak an intern into uh, this guy, Bob Creamer's uh, consultancy. And she recorded everything that she experienced on that internship over eight days, just lots of conversations between Bernie Sanders and consultants and, and, you know, she was, you know, hearing conversations about what Hillary Clinton was approving and doing. And nobody knew that this uh, person that was working for them was actually Project Veritas uh, operative. And they found out afterwards when uh, Sinclair got a copy of what was said and started asking questions and they were shocked. And so years later, this now has, has gone to trial and they're, you know, basically accusing Project Veritas of, of wiretapping, of, of misrepresentations, and a jury will soon decide uh, whether you know, th- that activity was essentially illegal. What was it that this young woman working for Project Veritas actually found that was allegedly damaging? So we can uh, debate you know, whether it was you know, truly shocking stuff or not, uh, but she learned about things such as, you know, quote unquote, bracketing, where basically Trump would you know, hold rallies around the nation and the Democrats would stage counter messaging rallies wherever uh, Trump went or things called bird dogging where, you know, they would place sympathetic voters on the lines. So whenever Trump would handshake with people, he would be aggressively questioned, you know, and this, this sort of you know tricks the trade has been routine for for many years. But, you know, she had firsthand uh, impressions of the Democratic consultants talking about these things. They, you know, talked about like the time when Clinton approved a Donald Duck impersonator who was sent to Trump Tower to uh, bring attention to how he hadn't released his taxes. The Democrats that year wanted to highlight, you know, Trump not releasing his tactics. And so they discussed, you know, various ways that they might do that. And they settled on a, a Donald Duck impersonator, which, you know, not something that's truly shocking. But, you know, to, you know, Trump and his supporters, this was proof that the Democrats were playing dirty, that they you know, were trying to disrupt these rallies. And when all this got out, the, uh, the consultants lost uh, you know, a bunch of his contracts. And that's why he's suing right now. So this young woman, she lies about her identity and her intentions to get this brief unpaid internship with Creamer. And that's at the center of the case, right? This misrepresentation, not that she secretly recorded her boss or that O'Keefe and Veritas defamed him, but that she lied about who she was and why she was there. There are two things that are, you know, basically on play at this. One is the secret recording and the other is the misrepresentations to get into the door. Um, the, the trial doesn't necessarily focus on what was published about the Democratic operatives. On the other hand, uh, Project Veritas is saying that the damage came not because of any of these misrepresentations, but because of the shocking truths of what was published. So it's in some sort of ways, you know, what, what the Democrats were doing is on trial here too. But for the most part, you know, the jury's trying to figure out whether or not there was a legitimate purpose in this woman doing what she did, you know, whether she was doing it for journalistic reasons or whether, as the, the Democrats contend, uh, she was really running a, you know, a political spy operation for Trump to get Trump elected. That's basically the, their contention here that, you know, basically this whole thing was a whole setup so that, uh, you know, they could spy on the Democrats and then 
rub some salt in the operations. Is there any kind of journalistic exemption for that sort of wiretapping that you're describing? There is none explicitly in the wiretap statutes. Uh, you know, some states say that you need all parties on a, on a conversation to consent to wiretapping. But D.C. and under federal wiretapping statute, it's different. It's only one party that needs to do it. So theoretically, the person who's doing the secret recording could be that person who consents. However, there's an exception to that one party in D.C. and under federal statute, which says that you can't do it for a tortious purpose. So the question is, was she doing it for a journalistic purpose? If so, then that's that might be legitimate. On the other hand, if she was doing political spying, if she you know, had breached some sort of fiduciary duty with, as, as part of her internship, that is a bit more nefarious and that might be deemed as a waiver to that one party consent rule. And so the, the, the jury could come back and say, you know, what she did was wrong uh, and we need to punish Project Veritas for that. Yeah, this seems really thorny if the question at the center of the case turns on whether Project Veritas is practicing genuine journalism, whatever that means, or not. What are some of the consequences here if O'Keefe wins or if he loses? No matter what happens, I expect there to be an appeal. Uh, this is one of those cases with where the stakes are kind of moderate. They're, they're not too low enough or they're not so high enough that I could see both parties like really, you know, pushing their appellate buttons as much as they, they can. But, you know, it's very rare to have a legal case like this that sets up, you know, is this journalism so cleanly? And especially as technology progresses and there'll become lots of opportunities for, you know, for journalists or for political operatives to play dirty tricks and, and kind of steal information and then publish it to the world. Uh, so, you know, this is the type of case that, you know, can kind of like tell us what the boundaries are. I should say that you and I are recording this on Monday afternoon. The trial started last week. When do you expect there to be a verdict? Well, the uh, the case is going to go a few more days. Uh, we're going to hear O'Keefe testifying, and then we're going to have closing uh, arguments, and then it'll be in the jury's hands. And you know, it's it's always hard to predict how long the jury will take, but it's possible we could get a a verdict at the end of this week. Eric, I have a confession to make. I have been recording this entire conversation. But with your consent, we're going to put this up on uh, the Powers That Be podcast. Does that work for you? You have my consent. So so this uh, podcast should be legal in all 50 states. I appreciate that. And thanks for stopping by. You've got a piece on this up at puck.news as well. So people who want to read more deeply can go check that out over there. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.